Progress vs. Parasites by Douglas Carswell Chapter 18 Progress Goes Global Most of humankind now enjoys, to some extent or other, the conditions that allow for economic growth. They're independent, largely from predatory outsiders. Most are open to trade and exchange, and many have some form of dispersed power. 200 years ago, those conditions existed only in a few pockets in northwestern Europe and America. Today, they're found, however imperfectly, almost everywhere. Much of the world used to be divided into different empires. A century ago, India was ruled by the British, Indochina by France. Almost all of Africa was claimed by one European power or another. Even those parts of the planet not formally controlled by an outside power were often part of an informal empire, like large swathes of South America. China, before the First World War, for example, was divided into different spheres of influence. France in the south, Britain along the Yangtze, Germany and Russia in the north. Much of Europe itself had been divided up into one or another empire as well. But then the European empires fell apart, in both Europe and beyond. Barely able to feed their own population at the end of the Second World War, the Dutch gave up on the idea of trying to reclaim their overseas possessions after Japanese occupation ended. Indonesia declared her independence in 1945. India had already agitated for self-government, so that at the start of the Second World War, Britain hung on in there by barely a thread. Britain formally declared the end of her empire in India in 1947 and rolled things up in Africa a decade or so afterwards. She was out of Malaysia by 1957. Some European powers, like France and Portugal, foolishly tried to cling on, but were defeated in a series of humiliating colonial wars that followed. America, apart from a brief fling with the Philippines that ended in 1946, avoided acquiring an empire at all, but managed to get herself entangled in Indochina after the French left. But even then, the last US Army personnel had left Southeast Asia, or at least Vietnam, by 1976. Russia, whose Soviet empire was perhaps the last of the great European empires, lost formal control over much of Eastern Europe and Central Asia in the early 1990s. Pretty much every other part of the planet has, in one way or another, undergone something a little bit like the Dutch had in 1581, or the Americans had in 1776. That is to say, the outsiders who ruled over them were ousted. Now, there are, of course, some important exceptions. It's possible to find places around the world, like Western Sahara or even Catalonia in modern-day Spain, where some local people still believe that they've been incorporated by, or at least unjustly incorporated into, a foreign power. But for all these exceptions, most societies have at least the first essential ingredients for success, independence. But of course, independence alone is never enough to produce progress and prosperity. If society simply swaps external predators for internal parasites, it can find itself even worse off. 
China had, for the better part of a century, been treated abominably by outside aggressors. Weakened by her own rulers from within, a series of outside powers were able to impose on her a series of extremely one-sided treaties. Ports were occupied and garrisons maintained, with foreigners claiming the right to levy their own taxes and customs. Enclaves and concessions were carved out. Different powers jostled to control the crumbling court of China's last emperor. Then during the 1930s and 40s, Japan launched a full-scale invasion, annexing territory and causing a calamitous loss of life. China's expulsion of these outside powers and their proxies in the 1940s should be seen as a heroic achievement. It's up there perhaps alongside Washington at Valley Forge. The Chinese communists' long march was a triumph against tyranny. But unlike the Americans after Yorktown, China's new rulers didn't then arrange for the dispersal of power within their domain. After driving out the last of Chiang Kai-shek's troops, forcing them to flee to Taiwan, China's new rulers imposed a system of centralised control. China's communists attempted to order every aspect of society from the centre. Land ownership was collectivised. Private property was abolished. Society was dragooned as surely as had happened under any emperor. Attempts were then made to force industrialization through the collective efforts at village level. These efforts were a disaster. People were forced off the land to work in factories, meaning there wasn't enough food. The so-called Great Leap Forward ended in mass starvation. Perhaps not entirely surprisingly, given her recent history, China, after the communist takeover, shut herself off from much of the world. Trade was severely restricted, and Hong Kong was, for many years, the only effective entry port between China and the world beyond. Now, China might have achieved her independence, but in the 1950s and 60s, she seems very far off from achieving any of the other conditions needed to achieve economic takeoff. Hundreds of millions of Chinese people lived a subsistence existence. In the early 1960s, famine meant many Chinese lived below even that. At almost the same time that China drove out the last of the occupying powers, India too achieved independence after centuries of foreign rule. India also demonstrated, albeit in a very different way, that independence alone is not enough to ensure economic success. Unlike communist China, India attained independence as a democracy, and it has remained a successful one ever since. Her rulers might, unlike those in Beijing, have had to answer directly to the people. Power across post-independence India was never as concentrated as it has been in communist China. But India, too, turned inward, inhibiting free exchange. Under Nehru, a series of disastrous attempts were made to make India's economy self-contained. Massive import taxes were imposed, farming cooperatives were created, government officials made investment decisions. India might have been independent, but closed off from the world economy, her share of world trade fell in the 1950s and 60s. There were food shortages and even famines. Worse was yet to come when Nehru's successor and daughter, Indira Gandhi, nationalised the banks and then the coal, iron, steel and even textile industries. 
strict regulatory controls were imposed on the private sector so that the production of almost anything required a set of permits and permissions. Almost exactly the same pattern of independence followed by introversion happened in that other Asian giant, Indonesia. Independence from the Dutch was not followed by dramatic progress, but by several decades during which a small self-serving elite inhibited free trade and exchange. First under Sukarno and then Suharto, Indonesia imposed on herself all manner of economic controls. These gave a small number of politically connected individuals and their families levers that they could pull in order to extort. Suharto and his entourage did so on an epic scale, siphoning off a fortune. While the president's personal income soared, that of his fellow countrymen stagnated. It was as if after independence, George Washington or Alexander Hamilton had embezzled congressional funds while nationalising the American economy. By the late 1960s, Indonesia could only feed herself by distributing American food aid. Much of the growth that there was in the 1980s was dependent on oil exports. Between the mid-1960s and mid-1980s, per capita income in Indonesia stagnated. Across much of sub-Saharan Africa, independence saw an even more rapacious elite taking over from foreign powers. Suharto-like strongmen emerged in dozens of African states. Nations' treasuries were turned into the private bank accounts of a series of autocrats. Import taxes were erected to discourage trade. In many nations, among them countries like Ghana or Zaire, per capita incomes fell in the decades that followed independence. Some, such as Uganda and Ethiopia, saw decades of turmoil, war and worse. By the 1980s, many of Africa's independent states looked like they were falling apart. Not only is it true that independence isn't enough, paradoxically in Asia, it was those states that weren't fully independent that tended to prosper best. Alone among the Asian states in the 19th century, Japan had taken off economically. She was eventually joined in the mid-20th century by a second group of Asian states, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore and Taiwan. These four states from the 1960s began to achieve rapid increases in per capita output and income. Now, why did these four states start to prosper when they did? And why did they start to flourish while many of their larger neighbours stagnated? Part of the reason is that they started out under the protective umbrella of a distant power. In much the same way, perhaps, that Venice got going under the suzerainty of remote Byzantium. Each of these four Asian states were either formally, if likely, ruled by Britain, Singapore until 1965, Hong Kong until 1997, or firmly within the American sphere of influence. Taiwan from 1949 and South Korea from 1950. As satellites of the Anglo-American powers, these small states were in one sense not fully independent. But as with Venice many centuries 
earlier. Revolving around and orbiting around one big remote power helped ensure that they remained outside the gravitational pull of some of their nearer neighbours, which might otherwise have looked to absorb them. Britain ensured that neither Singapore nor Hong Kong was overrun by their more powerful neighbours, the way, for example, that Portuguese Goa was when she was annexed by India in 1961. American military power kept the Chinese army north of the 38th parallel on the Korean peninsula and prevented Beijing from making any attempts to try to cross the Straits of Taiwan. Being notionally part of Byzantium meant that Greece... Sorry, being notionally part of Byzantium meant that Venice was, in her earliest days, part of a wider Greek-speaking Mediterranean world. In a similar way, perhaps, through the alliances that they had with their English-speaking patrons, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea and Taiwan were able to access investment, capital and technology from the West. The combined effect of all of this was dramatic. Hong Kong, a dilapidated, sleepy port in the late 1940s, experienced double-digit growth from the early 1950s. Trade and people poured in. Soon Hong Kong was a major economic hub. Something similar happened in Singapore. In the mid-1950s, Singapore's per capita GDP was about half that what it was in the UK. Today it's roughly twice that of the UK's. Hong Kong too has experienced rapid per capita growth. Taiwan and South Korea also boomed. Often thought of as merely middle-income countries, both are actually drawing level with and in some cases overtaking living standards in the West. South Korea is no longer a middle-income country anymore. She's a wealthy industrial nation on par with the best. By the 1970s, some of the smaller Asian states were clearly pulling ahead. From the 1980s, China then began to follow. Then in the 1990s, India, and in the first decade of the 21st century, Indonesia, began to follow too. Where the smaller Asian states had led, some of the larger Asian giants followed. They too started to open up their economies and put various kinds of constraint on those who ruled them. In the late 1970s, a group of Chinese officials in Anhui province realised that they were facing a catastrophic food shortage. So, it's said, they decided to turn a blind eye when a few local families started to farm part of the collectivised land for themselves. They chose not to notice. What they were soon unable to avoid noticing was that where families were able to farm their own plots of land and keep the proceeds, productivity shot up. What an intrepid or perhaps slightly desperate group of farmers in one remote corner of China had started to do on their own initiative, officials started to encourage elsewhere. Collectivization was quietly scrapped in favour of family-run farms. Soon, officials were permitting not only the private production of food, but allowing farmers to sell the things they produced. The supply of food increased dramatically. 
By the time the president, Deng Xiaoping, formally allowed family farms, he was simply recognising what had become a reality for many on the ground. Others say that the big change in China came about as an unintended consequence of the Cultural Revolution. So traumatised were China's bureaucratic class by this upheaval in the late 50, 60s and early 70s. It was no longer up to issuing instructions to every state-owned enterprise from on high. So, according to this theory, companies and individuals started to take the initiative locally. Others imply it was all about power politics at the top, and that Chinese leadership was simply looking to repudiate the so-called Gang of Four after Mao's death. The Gang of Four favoured top-down top control, so their opponents promoted the opposite. However it came about, there was a profound change in the way that China was run in the 1970s, late 1970s and early 1980s. The centre stopped trying to run everything, and there followed the most extraordinary growth. To be clear, China's rulers might have allowed, encouraged even a decentralisation of economic decision-making, but there's not been any significant relaxation of political control. As the protesters in Tiananmen Square discovered in 1989, the regime remains extraordinarily intolerant of any form of political dissent. The land might have been decollectivised and the free market enthusiastically embraced, but there is no free market of opinion allowed in China to this day. As well as decentralising economic decision-making, China began to open up to the outside world. Having felt threatened at one time by hostile powers, China in the decades after the Second World War shut herself off from outsiders. Gradually, however, she relented. From the 1980s, her rulers encouraged outside investment. Companies from Japan, Germany, America and elsewhere were allowed to set up operations in China. At first, this meant outsiders making things in China. But as know-how and capital flowed into the country, Chinese firms started to produce as part of a global supply chain too. China today consumes about half the world's coal and iron ore produced. In a generation, she's gone from being a country where people used bicycles to get around to being the world's largest consumer and producers, producer of cars. Last year, some 17 million cars were sold in China, almost double the number sold just a decade before. Only three decades ago, China's economy was largely agricultural. In the last few years, it has spawned digital giants like Tencent, Alibaba, Weibo. In 1978, the average Chinese person earned the equivalent of 155 US dollars. Last year, the average Chinese income was over 13,000 US dollars. Power was never centralised in India the way it had been in China. Decision-making was always dispersed between state and local governments, and often chaotically so. What changed in the 1980s is that India's administration stopped trying to run the economy. Restrictions on imports were lifted, permits were scrapped, capital and technology were allowed to flow in, often channelled through India's extensive diaspora. Output started to increase dramatically in the 1990s. 
where China led in the 1980s, India followed in the 1990s, and Indonesia went too in the noughties. Indonesia opened up and foreign direct investment flowed in. Exports have subsequently surged. Between 2000 and 2018, according to the World Bank, Indonesia's total annual output increased almost fivefold. The percentage of Indonesians living in poverty has plummeted from about a quarter of the population 20 years ago to one in 10 today. In 1978, China had a per capita income and output similar to a country like Zambia. Since then, Chinese economic output has expanded by about 10% a year for almost 40 years. But now, too, it seems that Zambia and those other sub-Saharan countries, which were once a benchmark for poverty, are starting to follow a similar path towards progress as well. Per, per capita income and output in Africa have more than doubled since 2000, after decades of hardly changing at all. Across Africa, dictators have been replaced by autocrats. Autocrats have been nudged aside by elected leaders. Most African rulers today hold office by virtue of some sort of election, however imperfect. Digital technologies opened Africa up so that previously remote farmers are able to buy and sell more freely than ever. While progress in Africa is still in its very early stages, and with very real potential for all kinds of reversal, it does, however, seem as if Africa south of the Sahara is embarking on a similar journey of rising per capita incomes and output and the accompanying improvements in living standards. The conditions conducive to economic takeoff have become ubiquitous over the past 200 years or so. Today, almost every country on the planet, with a few exceptions, enjoys independence. However imperfectly, power is more dispersed than it's ever been. Almost every society on earth has greater opportunities to exchange and trade. Will these benign conditions continue? Is the international order simply sustained by the American superpower? Being under the Pax Americana ensured that South Korea and Taiwan had the conditions that enabled them to grow. Are we all, in a sense, thriving because of the Pax Americana? Or is this progress underpinned by some sort of global acceptance of insights about self-order? Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.